I'm William Jess Laird. This is Image Culture. My guest today is the artist Camilla Hoffman. In her work, Camilla rethinks the narratives embedded in traditional American landscape painting. She points out the political motivations of the romantic landscape, its enforcement of ideas of manifest destiny, and Western exceptionalism. And in doing so, she begins a conversation about the monolithic history of painting. Looking closely at this history motivated Camilla to focus on her materials. In addition to traditional oil paint, she uses printed matter collected from her daily life, ranging from holiday-themed plastic tablecloths to discarded medical records, from plastic bags to nature calendars. The resulting works reimagine what a landscape painting can be and point out how charged the medium has always been. I had the chance to photograph Camilla in her recent installation, Rockabye My Bedrock Bones, at False Flag Projects, in which she covered the exhibition space in a massive wall painting using tones derived from her own skin. You can see the photograph at our website, williamjesslaird.com slash imageculture, or on Instagram at williamjesslaird. You can see Camilla's current show, Excelsior, Ever Upward, Ever Afloat, in which she remixes the allegorical figures in the New York State Seal, now at the Queens Museum. It'll be up through fall of 2019. Here I am with Camilla Hoffman. Yeah. Did you dress up for Halloween? I didn't dress up for Halloween this year, but I recently made a post of a Halloween costume that I had from two years ago mm-hmm. that was recently ripped off. And what, yeah. what was the what was the costume? What I happened? went as ghosted, so I dressed up like a ghost, but then I had like text messages that weren't returned <laughs> on my like chest. Yeah, and some like hollow, big Halloween company like stole the idea and like made it a slutty version. Wait, did they actually steal the idea? Like, is this verified? I actually like talked to a copyright lawyer. <laughs> oh wait, this is real. <laughs> I thought this was a joke, but now it's real. It's getting all too real. It's all too real. No, but I'm not, I'm not, it's not worth like pursuing, but it is like annoying. This is the closest I've come to a Halloween costume this year though. <laughs> it's just, it's just so, fighting so this, this my, battle. <laughs> oh my God. So this is my costume from two years ago. <laughs> Wait, let me read the text message. The messages actually go on the back too. Like it's a whole. Where's the party? Hey, can't wait to see you Friday. What time are we meeting? So still haven't heard from you. That's the kicker. Are we still on for tonight? Dude, what the fuck? Yep. And you can also see when that they're red. The oh the read receipts. Yeah, yeah. So I like I went in, you know, I got the emojis, everything. It's really terrifying. Well, Camilla Hoffman, thanks so much for having us to your to your show. It's an honor and a pleasure. <laughs> so tell me about growing up. Where'd you Where are you from? So I'm originally from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up on the northwest side between Humble Park and Logan Square area, but I've moved around a lot between there and here. So went to high school in Arizona lived for many years in the Bay Area. I when did, did you move to Arizona? I moved to Arizona my freshman year of high school, which was 2001, 2000. A big move. Yeah. What was the occasion? My mom's job relocated out there. Mm-hmm. So we went from like inner city Chicago yeah. to Arizona suburbia. And it was a shock on many levels. First of all, it was just fucking hot. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it was like... We moved there in the summer, and it was, like, literally 115 degrees outside. Mm-hmm. They're like, it's a dry heat, but I'm like, it's... It's, it's, it's a heat. It's, it's a heat. <laughs> um, Especially from Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Do you consider yourself, like, a like like Chicago? Is that your hometown? Totally, mm-hmm. totally. Even though it's changed so much since I've, I've lived there, and mm-hmm. a lot of the places that I sort of situate my memories and identity around are, like completely, Mm -hmm. um, transformed Mm -hmm. or gentrified. So, 
but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's really a part of who I am and my foundation and my family's identity as well. Mm-hmm. You know, as, <laughs> as negatively as I'm speaking about Arizona, you know, that transition and um, moving into this new place, into this new landscape, into this new culture was also as challenging as it was really important in my development and understanding of like my identity as well. Well, when you get to Arizona, so you're, you're a freshman, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, did you, were you thinking about art at the time? Were you already sort of in that mindset? I've always been an art geek, mm-hmm. always. I was really quiet kid growing up, but making was sort of my, not only like outlet for expression, but also a way to connect, mm-hmm. make friends. Mm-hmm. I come from a family of artists, uh, a very creative people always around me, always, art always around me. So I was lucky in that way that I always understood that as an opportunity and a possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by the time I got to high school, I actually went to a charter arts high school for the first two years I was in Arizona mm-hmm. and was really encouraged at that point already to pursue my work seriously and experiment with with all kinds of medias, and even working like with the theater program. I started mm-hmm. like playing with like set design and oh, cool. that kind of thing. So. Did you, so you came from a family of artists? Yeah. Who is who, who are the artists in the family? Oh man, so there's a long line. I, I, I want to first acknowledge my grandmother, Shoshana, uh, who was the one who inspired me to become a painter. Wow. Yeah. So she's from my father's side. Um, and she was originally from Detroit, but then grew up in Chicago. She worked in the factories during World War II, was, was kind of a Rosie the Riveter in a way, yeah. but, but made a series of incredible drawings illustrating her day-to-day experiences in an integrated all-women factory. Mm-hmm. Um, she worked in the whole house in Chicago and then was teaching painting classes. And then um, there, was a, there was a lot of back and forth between her sort of like social practice and art making. That really informed, so I mean, I was close, she died unfortunately when I was 10 years old, but mm. for the early part of my childhood, uh, we were very close. Mm-hmm. She always had me making things and I was always looking at her work and then we got her work when she, when she passed away and it was up in, in our, uh, our house. And so there were so many seeds that were planted at that point mm-hmm. in terms of not just art making as a possibility, but also as a vehicle to talk about a certain kind of social condition, to talk mm-hmm. about a human experience. So there's, there's my grandma, Shani, Shoshana. Her older brother, um, Mitchell Saporin, was a little bit more well-known, WPA muralist. Oh, wow. He, um, he actually... That's such a specific branch of the, whole, the yeah. whole narrative, you know what I mean? Is that all that WPA work is so, you know... Totally. It's almost like socialist in a certain way, you well, know? Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I mean, that side of my family, we're all like... Jewish socialists, uh-huh. <laughs> like either artists or labor organizers. Yeah, cool. Um, very, very active. Or hand in hand, artists and labor organizers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Cool. One of his most famous commissions was the St. Louis Post Office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he did like he did mural at uh, Lane Tech High School in Chicago, and his career was starting to rise. And then the kind of Greenbergian Ab X hammer came down, and which is the opposite of the WPA. I think. Exactly. Yeah. See, that's what's interesting is that that whole. Like, I, I feel like there's such a tight narrative surrounding, like, American art. You're taught it in school, and it's, it's mm-hmm. the Greenbergian thing. I mean, I don't know. If you're, if you're doing, like, murals, it's, it's completely almost, like, written out of the, uh, the narrative of sort of sophisticated American art, right? right. And, and it's, it's Unfortunately. sort of erroneous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, that narrative is, is a really important part of who I am and where I'm coming from as an artist. Mm-hmm. And, and so much of my process now is even salvaging like that narrative, you know, even if it wasn't um, reinforced in my academic 
training. Mm-hmm. Did you find like a big discrepancy between like between sort of that background and training academically as a painter? So, yes and no. My academic background is like a, for undergrad. I actually I went to California College of the Arts in the Bay mm-hmm. Area. And my major was actually in community arts. Hmm. Um, so it was a fairly new program when I started there, art and social practice program, where you know I was situated within a fine arts school and minored in painting, but I was working with the Center for Art and Public Life, which I don't even know exists anymore there, uh, working in public schools all around the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were having a lot of conversations around youth development and, and, and uh, activism in relation to art practice. And so that was definitely more in line with a lot of the thinking that I think, you know, in terms of like where my, my, my artist family from my father's side was coming from. Right. Um, but then like for graduate school, which was like five years after I graduated, I ended up, I ended up going to Yale. Um, in the, I was in the painting program mm-hmm. and it was a very different kind of conversation. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I, I'll say that even at CCA, you know, we were requ- required to take art history classes and there, there was a lot of conflict in terms of like what I was learning in my community arts program but then the, the incredibly Eurocentric curriculum mm-hmm. and, and in terms of how art history was framed and or like what art was sort of upheld and and what art was dismissed and that would sometimes play out in in like my art classes and and uh and I actually ended up like doing a a, a big project like this big campaign my junior year of college countering they were celebrating their centennial, and the school came up with the slogan, uh, the future of culture. Future of culture. CCA 100, the future of culture. And they made these banners that like hung up and down the streets in Oakland, where the campus is that's now going to be closing, unfortunately, but and in San Francisco. And so, you know, like I, I was like seeing this and then coming back to like the Center for Art of Life and speaking with my friends, I was like, oh, what does this, what does the future of culture mean if like we're like some of the few artists of color within this college and we're in the middle of Oakland, where right. the demographics are completely opposite. Yeah. And like we're still going to art history classes, and African and, and Latin American and oceanic art is like sup, you know considered this sort of like supplemental mm-hmm. component. Mm-hmm. So I ended up like making this the series of posters that had that uh, that slogan and were, were printed in the the same style mm-hmm. as the the college's uh, campaign, but then publicizing the, the demographics of the top underrepresented groups on campus. So it'd be like. Oakland 100, the future of culture, 0.4% Native American mm-hmm. or 1.8% African American, mm-hmm. and um, hung them all around and made buttons or everybody. Wait, could 1.8% African American? Mm-hmm. Really? At, the t- at that point, yeah. That's that point. that's crazy. In the middle of Oakland. Wow. <laughs> God, that's like that's intense. Yeah. What was the administration's response to that? So. You know, it's funny. I purposefully, you know, I had I made that, I had that gesture, sort of, you know, like making these, this sort of public statement with the posters and, and then people wearing the buttons. But I also was strategic in terms of offering some sort of like antidote to, to the problem. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, all right, this is a, this is an issue, but I'm also going around with a tape recorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interviewing my peers. I was interviewing staff, teachers who all, you know, had something to say right. about, you know, what culture meant to them mm-hmm. you know what what the future of culture meant to them and, and how it related or didn't in their opinion to the status of diversity on campus mm-hmm. and so I was sort of armed with this like 60 page transcribed report mm-hmm. upon installing these posters and left them on the desks of the administrators it ended up you know I was like okay I could I, I could get kicked out right now yeah. <laughs> but fortunately ended up being a really productive conversation 
I had a little, I had sort of some strange leverage because my freshman year, this is something that sort of would happen to me a lot, still happens from time to time, but I'm a little more guarded about it, but being this sort of like ambiguously ethnic member of certain institutions where, you know, diversity is lacking, there's this sort of like poster child, Mm -hmm. like effect, you know, if, mm-hmm. if they get a, po- a picture here and there. And, and so they had already used my image in a lot of their catalogs and, you know, pub- trying to publicize this image of diversity that didn't exist. And so I felt that like bizarre, I, had, right? I had some leverage there. I was yeah. like, well, and I, I get to put a voice behind these images. Ex- excuse me. Why am I on this poster right now? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and just if you, re- if you keep repeating these images, it doesn't mean that there's more people. Yeah. It's the same person. <laughs> <laughs> I know that must be such a weird feeling. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so anyway, so, I mean, that's like in many ways, very different from the work that I'm making now, but still so rooted my work is still very much rooted in these kinds of questions and conversations Mm -hmm. around, around identity, around navigation and also agency. Were you painting at the time as well? I was painting at the time. Yeah. What what were those like? So I was working very figuratively actually. Mm -hmm. I was in a, I was on kind of a WPA, like social realist kick. Mm Mm-hmm. One of my favorite all-time artists uh, is Charles White, mm-hmm. who right now has an incredible retrospective up right now at the MoMA. He actually was a student of my great uncle Mitchell Saporin. Oh, how cool! And this was back in the day when he couldn't be—he wasn't admitted to the Art Institute for being black, but he briefly assisted my uncle. And I ended up finding this out later, but but I was always really drawn to his work and the beauty and integrity that he gave his subjects and, you know, really sort of like also the accessibility of, he would make these incredible paintings and drawings, but also making, making a point to like create these, these prints or, or, or works that could still be accessible and still bought by the people that he was represented right? or that he was representing when I was in, yeah, when I was in college, I was basically like copying Charles. I was like, I, I want to be as good as him. So yeah. I was making these like, yeah, just like figures from my day-to-day life, people that I knew portraits, but you know, with these sort of with with a strong presence and I guess I guess now in and correct me if I'm wrong but when I look at your work I see mostly a dialogue with landscape Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when did that first first come in for you so the landscape started to merge I would say that it started to come up for me around six or seven years ago um this was leading up to the point when I was like okay I'm gonna like apply consider applying to grad school yeah I was doing research around colonial maps and I started getting really interested into this in this genre of painting called casta painting which were these paintings were made in like colonies of Spain primarily Mexico but also in the Philippines where my mom's family's from we're talking about like 15 1600s they were used to document interracial families and to also sort of calculate and create the sort of hierarchy between um, the mixture of indigenous African and European. So what what you would have were like these really beautiful, beautifully painted domestic scenes of typically a mother and a father and a child or, or two two children, and you know one mother would the mother would be of a certain race and the father would be of another race, and then they would have like a label below indicating not only what the mix was but they had a name for it. Mm-hmm. So the more common names you you, you still kind of hear to this day, like mestizo, mestiza, Mm -hmm. which is like a mixture of Spanish and indigenous, but they would have other names, sometimes even animal names, like very derogatory. They would get progressively more derogatory the more black or indigenous the mixture was. Right. Also, 
the ways in which the families were depicted, they would become like progressively less civilized mm -hmm. as well. So th there's hundreds of these paintings that exist, and they were used for like a very violent, you know, uh, strategic purposes. You know, sort of like reinforcing this this caste system in the colonies. And where were they? Where were they sort of displayed? If that makes sense, I'm trying to. I'm trying so to get a... they were they were mostly. I mean, a lot of them were painted like in the, the new lands, quote-unquote new lands, but um, were used mostly like in Spain as, a, as like sort of a form of propaganda or talking right. about like what, what's, what's happening you know, yeah. in these places. And so as I started like researching and looking more at these paintings, you know, for me, you know, it resonates very deeply being a mixed-race person. And I started to think about my work as a painter mm -hmm. and also materiality, uh, I started thinking about not just the subjects of these of these paintings, but also how the paint itself, the canvas itself, the brushes itself uh, that, that are used to, to make these paintings are not neutral, that they come from a certain tradition, mm -hmm. they come from a certain legacy, in this case, a very Eurocentric legacy, that can have very detrimental consequences. You know, that there's just like so much power in that kind of image that can is created from these particular materials. And so as I started to dive more into that, I started to think about, okay, well, I can't take my materials for granted anymore. I was, I was using oil on canvas, but I'm like, even the canvas functions as an object in space. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something, this is sort of like, okay, like foundational in, in art school, you know, like I'm taught to, to use these things. But if this isn't neutral, then what's the difference between me also incorporating other materials that maybe more directly relate to my day-to-day -day experience? Right. I was making a series of paintings, applying the, when I applied to Yale actually with a portfolio of paintings that were abstractions of these Casta paintings. First, just with oil on canvas, but referencing the direct skin tones of that and creating these sort of like glazes using traditional like pre-Raphaelite like technique too. And Wait, what, the, what's that technique? Well, like you, you would have, uh, you can use like different mediums, like like um, you know, like lin linseed oil, and, uh, to create. I mean, if you look at like very traditional, like even like Renaissance paintings, right? Like skin to create to create skin that like has dimension and and looks like the skin that we have on our, you know, sitting on our bones. You know, there's muscle underneath. There's mm -hmm. veins underneath. Um, certain colors. You know, if muscle is is a reddish tone and and you have skin on top, like that, some of that red and pink is going to come through. If if you have veins, like I have very veiny hands, like you know, the blood that's running through my veins, like, shows and there's, there's going to be blue streaks, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking about, like, both the technique but also the metaphor, like, creating right. these, like, layers um, that can articulate and also obscure. And I started, as I, I, was, I was making these, like, kind of, started making kind of, like, map paintings that were, like, referencing the colonial maps but also using these techniques um, and these colors from the Casta paintings. Mm. And so at this point, they were still, but they were still very traditional. They were oil on canvas. Yeah. Um, but when I got but to... But obviously, you're starting to have this conversation that we're, you know, we're, we're, I should say, we're sitting in your, in your show at False Flag right now, and the walls are sort of this... I mean, how would you describe them in your own words? I mean... This is, this is, these walls consist of 3,000 square feet of my skin. Mm -hmm. It's painted with house paint, but these colors directly reference the colors of my skin throughout the seasons and under varying degrees of light and pressure. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I, I did this, this Casta series years ago, but then coming to this space and really thinking about this landscape work that I've been doing for the past six years with 
other kinds of materials. I, I, there, there's been an interesting full circle moment. Yeah, I, yeah, I'll say so yeah, <laughs> for sure. But I didn't mean to derail you. So you're, no so you're making these, you're making these works that are obviously starting the conversation that you've continued, but yeah. are relatively traditional in terms of their actual actual material. Right. So I mean, I suppose the next step is to ask when did when did the material start getting a little less yeah. traditional? Yeah. So, so it all started when when I was at Yale. I learned that the Yale University Art Gallery had one of the largest Southeast Asian textiles Mm -hmm. collections, um, including many textiles from the region where my grandmother's from in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And um, that was just like such a beautiful realization that I can go across the street and actually interact with these objects that were so directly connected to my, my ancestry, my past. And as I started spending time with these textiles and speaking with the curator, and I was thinking so much about the purpose that that these objects would s- serve you know both within the context of my family history but then within the context of the museum um i was thinking a lot about how you know they were oftentimes used as as offerings you know during matrimonial ser- um, ceremonies or, or f- for funerary purposes but really were things that were meant to be passed mm-hmm. down from generation to generation Sometimes, you know, either they were used as a garment or used as, you know, uh, something to be placed on an altar or both. But that everything was very is d- deliberate in terms of even the design. That's something that might, you know, this day and age, someone might look at it and think, okay, that's just like, that's a beautiful decoration. Each diamond shape, each zigzag, each, each pattern had a very important sort of spiritual resonance. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically there's this interlocking diamond um, pattern that, that is reoccurring in, in many, not just Filipino textiles, but also other Southeast Asian textiles that represent the eyes of the ancestors. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about this as an object that is you know, passed down from generation to generation um, and this ancestral presence that remains, there's this ancestral vision that remains with the person who owns it at the time mm-hmm. that's that's really powerful you know yeah. and this is a material thing this is this it's woven it's it's a it's uh it's a visual object you know it um in many ways can also be read as a painting you know mm-hmm. um but i started to i started to think a lot about then even more so like the significance of the materials that i use and the way in which i incorporate them to on one hand pay homage to perhaps my past, but then also connect with something or recreate something or, or create something new in terms of my future. Hmm. So this is happening while, meanwhile, I'm, so I've, I started, I'm shopping at the dollar store down the street. I grew up shopping at the dollar store. My family and I must have, we, we depended on the dollar store growing up. And so there's something that is, I mean, very familiar about it. I, you know, one, there was one day I was, I was at the Yale University Art Gallery, spending time with these textiles, and then I went down to the Dollar Tree on Chapel Street and to pick up some Kleenex or something, and I saw these holiday-themed plastic tablecloths, and there was something, you know, I, I grew up with these tablecloths, too. My mom used them. We had them, you know, for birthday parties and all, all kinds of stuff, but it resonated on a whole other level for me at that moment. I was just like, this is, even though it's, like, five times removed... 10 times removed, 20 times removed, still trying to be a, te- a textile that yeah. serves a ceremonial purpose. Yeah. You know, even if it's made in China to represent... And printed, you and know. And printed, yeah. right, to, to represent, like, Cinco de Mayo or Hanukkah, whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, people buy this, they put it on their table, they mm-hmm. dine on it, you know, and then they throw it away. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what does that mean? Like, is there still value, even if it is this disposable 
mass-produced like object that's toxic to the environment, is there still value in this attempt mm-hmm. to connect with some kind of ceremony or ritual? Even if it's yeah. a bad attempt. Yeah. Even if it's a bad attempt. <laughs> even if it's like for the Americans to celebrate Cinco de Mayo, which is not even actually yeah. the day of independence from Mexico, or the, or the one that they celebrate, you know. So, so there, there was this like sort of back and forth that I started having. I just bought up a bunch of these plastic tablecloths and um, started painting on them in my studio, mm-hmm. taking them back to, to my studio at Yale and just like, I didn't, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but there was, there was something that I was like trying to resolve. Right. And, um, had you ever done that before? Like, had you ever used material like that or was it like, was this a complete left? Well, you know, as a kid, so my, I I spoke when I was talking about my my family history with, with art, I didn't mention yet that from my mom's side, um, she's a design, she's was a fashion designer for many years. Um, and, um, and still she makes her own jewelry and leather work and stuff like that. But there was this sort of, um, this kind of like fixer upper like mentality where like a lot of things she didn't want to invest or you know we didn't have much money to invest in like fancy toys or that kind of thing but it was always like well we can like make stuff mm-hmm. and like we can make it even cooler than what you saw at the toy store mm-hmm. and because you're all artists because we're all artists <laughs> yeah. yeah and so like I remember having this dope playhouse uh-huh. that was made with cardboard boxes and she, and, and I, I liked you know I was like I like flowers you know so my mom like got all her like magazines and like Guard, like garden magazines and things like that. We just cut out all the flowers. We had a Saturday and just like cut out all the flowers and just pasted the entire playhouse with just different like flower designs. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's, I mean, this was like I don't know, I was three years old, four years old, but this started to come creep back into my practice. This right. was something that was so almost primal, you know, like it was a part. It was a part. Felt of, familiar in some familiar, way. Familiar, yeah. yeah. You know, there was this moment, like, in, you know, in grad school, and I was, I was just like, I didn't know what I was doing. My professors didn't know what I was doing, but I, there was, but I felt compelled to do it, you know, yeah. and bringing these materials together. But I, I also have to say that at this time, I began collaborating, um, or, or just, it wasn't even a formal collaboration at this point, but I started speaking with a friend of mine, Edgar Garcia, who is a poet, is a poet and a scholar, um, looking at sort of like indigenous poetic influence on like modernity. Mm, cool. um, we're both like super into Sun Ra and like thinking about like ideas around like Afrofuturism and yeah. um, and he would write poems that would reference a lot of his research, research into like his own ancestry and, and um, sort of like uh, indigenous myth, but with these more sort of like futuristic like yeah, reimagining it and, ideas, yeah, sure. right? Yeah. And so just for fun, like he came to my studio one day and started writing some poems about these weird paintings I was making on tablecloths. Mm-hmm. And which were brand new at the time, which correct? were brand new yeah. at the time, and then and then after like he wrote this one poem, I, I was just like I want to I want to make something in relation to that in relation to your writing, and it just became this back and forth. We were bouncing back and forth, back and forth for the entire year, and it ended up becoming this like we ended up creating this long narrative about this like post-apocalyptic tribe of humans who are attempting to revive forgotten rituals. There was like this weaving that was cent- central to their existence that they, in the w- means in which they connected with their ancestors who lived in, this, in the stars. And so I started actually like weaving these tablecloths. I made this it started out as like a 30 foot weaving that grew to 90 feet mm-hmm. and I took it with me um, photographing it and like Holy Land USA, which is like an abandoned 1950s Bible theme park in, in Connecticut, in Waterbury, right? Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then um, God love to see that. Yeah, and it, it's, it's 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 a wild place. Um, and uh, the actual woven material, it, it's how did you how did you actually make it? 
So I, I've um, seen a photograph of it, but it might yeah, be sort of confusing. I mean, I cut them into long strands and, um, I, I rigged, yeah, I yeah. rigged like a loom from like the water pipes in the ceiling of my like studio, wow. which is probably not, uh, the safest thing, <laughs> Wasn't but, <sanctioned. laughs> but yeah, yeah, um, but it definitely, but it worked and yeah, I just, I did this sort of a simple, um, warp weft weave with these, with these tablecloths, but which was, what was really wild was, um, going back to the eyes of the ancestors. Yeah. You know, I had tablecloths from all over, like Disney tablecloths, all kinds of different themes, all kinds of colors. The eyeballs of these Disney characters that I was using started to pop out. Wow. And it was like, I was just like, at this point, it's like, this is no accident. You know, like there's a different, okay, the other they're cartoons or it might be Jake the Pirate or Dora the Explorer, but like, what what is the resonance of this particular, you know, it's still, it's still an eye. Yeah. It's still has this power to see or it's looking back at me at mm. least you know i feel that way um, and dora's eyes are huge right you know <laughs> right right so they definitely pop yeah they definitely do that's something that i started to you know i was i was weaving these things and starting to kind of really embrace that and eventually the weaving became less literal but more about the way i could think about returning to painting in interweaving an image with refuse on the picture plane. Mm -hmm. The eyes, though, still, like, remain, like, an important part. Dora the Explorer, in particular, like, remains an important sort of, like, proxy for me, like, in this this work. You took the weaving to Israel, too, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So... Then there was a summer, summer of 2014, which was a pretty contentious summer there, but I... I reconnected with... or, or connected with, for the first time, rather, family from my father's side. My dad... Um, he became Orthodox um, oh, later in, in in more more recent years. How um, old were you when that happened? I was already in college. Was that was that a strange experience? Um, it was. I was happy to see him find and connect with a community, mm-hmm. and you know his his spirituality. Obviously, he he, he wasn't religious when he married my a, a, a Filipino Catholic and uh-huh. you know but uh you know it, 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 it was a genuine like attempt to connect connect with meaning for him and and and, and also a way for me to understand or or connect with that side the Jewish side of my identity as well um but you know I have a very complicated and complex relationship to Judaism or mm-hmm. um in my life and and so a lot of as a lot of these questions were kind of coming up and as an attempt to also connect more deeply with my father or, or, or try and understand you know what was going on in his life I reached out to a cousin of ours who was already in his mid 80s um, mm. who has done a lot of geolo- uh, uh, genealogical research on our, our family and uh, particularly the family that was living in Belarus before the Holocaust and he went back to this like back in the 80s he went back to this town um, there were no Jews anymore at this point, but but um, interviewing people who had memories of my great uncle, you mm-hmm. know, um, praying in the synagogue, and um, and so he just had this whole incredible archive of just images and interviews um, of this, you know, the side of my family that I just like had never known, and and I was also understanding, you know, or, or trying to understand, you know, like what that meant in, in, in the context of like contemporary life for me back in the United States or, you know, for them in Israel. And also like what it also meant to see thousands of, this was a huge surprise 
to me, but thousands of Filipino domestic workers in the Philippine in, mm. in Israel, some of who were actually like working with my family, you know, my family there too. Yeah, strange, um, yeah. Yeah, and one of them actually converted and ended up, you know, and, and had a lot of um, challenges um, in that because there's, yeah. So. Must have been a crazy trip. It was a crazy, and yeah. there was a war happening that summer. So yeah. um, we were actually like going into bomb shelters like regularly, regularly on a daily basis. You know, the alarms would go off. That must be terrifying. So yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was an interesting experience. It was a really, um, it, it brought up a lot for me in terms of my creative practice. And at this point, then it like kind of grew the 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 forty the forty foot t- uh, weaving. Um, I started buying plastic tablecloths from their iteration of the dollar store, yeah. you know, and in, in, in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem yeah. and weaving that in. I mean, I brought this thing, it's, it's huge, but it's also plastic and lightweight. So I stuffed it in a suitcase. I stuffed it in a suitcase, you know, like one of those like, um, vacuum pack bags. You get oh yeah, clothes, yeah. 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 And, um, I had it with me in Israel and I brought it to, well, one of the, the main places I wanted to, to photograph it in was their theme park mm-hmm. called it's called mini israel in latern oh my god and um they have like a mini wailing wall and um just all like the major sites masada and all that um uh-huh. but because of the war like everything was like closed and i couldn't access it until the very last night so my my friend was able to sneak me in and kind of like guerrilla style we like photographed it in that in that place but sneakily photographed yeah. a 40 foot weaving yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it just kind of unraveled yeah. it yeah um <laughs> I mean, I, and my friend like was able to like say that he, he said something fancy in Hebrew to the guard about like, oh, this is my, my artist friend from New York and, you know, she's doing this important project or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so You should let her do this. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we got away with it. Um, cool. But yeah, it became this, this object that sort of, that traveled with me um, to these different places. I mean, it came with me to California then when I stayed with my mom after that. And, and I was interweaving literal materials from these places into it and also trying to make sense of my sense of place in relation to this object and the place that I was navigating, you know, at the time. So you still have it. I do. Do you add to it? still? it's taken a little break uh-huh. um, because now the tablecloths are going into <laughs> to paintings. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, it's, it's still, it's still with me and it, it, it may continue to grow. I was invited back to the, the Yale university art gallery to then display it next to the original textiles that I um, was researching at the time. That's cool. And um, I had it on display at uh, um, Marquand Chapel, also um, at, at Yale the, the Divinity School, and they mm-hmm. held mass underneath it. Interesting. So it's had many lives. Sometimes yeah. it's like even the lives are beyond me, you know. But I guess that's part of the beauty. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you had this was this weaving work, and I suppose that's really the first time you're working with with you know plastic bags and tablecloths and and when did they start to find their way into the paintings or how did you when you knew you wanted to start using them how did you start I mean how did you try and try and put them in there so, I mean I know that you had a couple in the studio when when right. Edgar came to respond to them but this exploration of landscape sort of directed how my use of the tablecloths changed mm-hmm. I was thinking a lot about okay so like we have this narrative about this post-apocalyptic tribe of humans you know and like what what are these places what do these landscapes actually look like mm-hmm. what is this land that they occupy and and also how can it connect to you know these landscapes that I've lived in over the course of my life but also like the landscapes that I've been taught about 
in my art history classes, mm -hmm. you know, the landscapes that were really sort of emphasized, you know, so this like romantic American landscape, uh, thinking about like the Hudson River School, like Bierstadt, Frederick Church, you know, these very like grandiose, epic, like sunsets and mountainscapes. And so, you know, at the time I, I, I it was, it was taught to me as like an important part of like American history. And, and, you know, I've always associated this sort of like aesthetic with like Americana, you yeah. know, but then as I, you know, as I started exploring more deeply, you know, my own family history and my own sort of like identity to, to the land that I live on, um, and the lands that my family had lived on, my own identity in relation to native communities that have lived on this land for thousands of years before most of us have gotten here. Mm -hmm. You know, like, what does it mean to live on borrowed land? I started to pick apart this, this aesthetic, like, language, very political language, like, built around landscape. I started to think about, you know, well, you know, I'm an, I am an American, you know, but what does it mean to be... Um, what does it mean to be a mixed race American? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to um, come from a family of immigrants who have come here as a result of, you know, colonial history or, or, or needing to, to, to flee or, um, you know, and how, you know, if, if I were to paint my own romantic American landscape, you know, would, would it be romantic or, or what, what, what does romanticism look like for me? Yeah. And back on the note of materials, you know, how can I speak to that aesthetic, but then also speak to the the layers of in, of meaning that are behind the actual materials that make it? Right. So there's a couple of shows that I wanted to go into specifically, both of which there are up now. Uh, so you have one show up now at the Queens Museum. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we should start there. What, can you describe the installation? Sure. So my my work at the Queens Museum is responding to uh, a 1930s WPA. Um, uh, model of the watershed system. Mm -hmm. So the Queens Museum is the, on the original site of the world's the 1930s, like 39 World's Fair, mm -hmm. and this model is uh, left over from that that time. So it's this large scale plaster cast, um, hand painted system that 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 demonstrates like the this incredible like feat of you know human ingenuity. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. The, the way in which they, they, they chart the waters from upstate all the way down to the city. And so it's a part of the, the permanent, um, one of the permanent galleries there. And it, it lights up. I mean, it's, it's really this kind of wild, expansive object. And I decided to respond to this model by working with the four walls that uh, circulate around it. Mm -hmm. Thinking about particularly the New York State Seal and the symbols uh, within it that speak directly to water and commerce. Mm -hmm. I basically took the, the state seal and those symbols, blew them up super large, and reinvented a lot of the, the imagery and symbols that, that exist within it. So, you know, there's a seal, a state seal would be, you know, incredibly allegorical. And, yeah. um, and there's, a, there's a Lady Liberty and a Lady Justice who are standing next to, you know, are, are framing this, this large crest that contains a European ship and sloop um, sailing on the Hudson River that represent foreign and domestic trade. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a big sun 
and I read in, in different places that sometimes the sun means this sort of like this this like the rise of like this enlightened time, or if it, it could also be a sun setting on like a more primitive period, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. Um, either way, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of questions yeah. there, right? <laughs> it's a sunset, you know. But like, how politicized can can something like a sun, a beautiful sunset, be? Well, when you put it on a seal, right? I mean, that's kind of the thing. Is that every everything? As you said, they are allegorical. Yeah, you know, it's everything like, has yeah. meaning. Yeah, and uh, there is um, there's a there's a globe atop the crest with a. a an eel, uh, an eel, <laughs> eagle, an eagle. Yeah, that's going back to my Filipino roots. Eels are very important. Um, e- e- with an are, eagle, eels, are eels important to Filipino culture? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's a, it's a common. It's a very delicious part of Filipino culture. Oh, okay. See, I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't, I... My grandmother actually, when she was um, uh, like living in like suburban DC, my mom tells me these stories about how she had this like you know like this 1950s like carport and like would actually like dry. Um, her eel on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> the neighbors would come by. They're like, Millie, what's that? Why is shooing away the neighborhood cat? My, my mom's job was to shoo away the neighborhood cats. But, oh my god! Yeah, so I love that. <laughs> I love eel. It it's delicious. Great. Yeah. <laughs> but an but, eagle but in this. In case, this. it was an eagle, not okay. an eel. But next project. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so not only was I thinking about these particular symbols, but I was also thinking about the New York State motto, which is Excelsior. In Latin, Excelsior means ever upward. Excelsior also happens to be the name of this material um, made from thin wood shavings of aspen trees that's used in anywhere from you know, hamster cages or, or, or stuffed animals to um, anti-erosion padding for farms. They make these giant rolls of it um, that they would, you know, that you can roll onto like hillsides to prevent mudsliding, mm. mudslides, and like help like seeds to germinate. And so I actually use this literal material in my installation, thinking about the kind of poetics between this statement connoting superiority, mm-hmm. you know, like Western superiority, and also this material that is typically meant to preserve something that's quite fragile, specifically related to the environment. And is of the environment, too. So in the seal, I also I, I reinterpreted the two boats. Instead of using the European ship and sloop for foreign and domestic trade, I recreated a Filipino balangay boat. One of the oldest balangays was found um, not too far from my family's island, Panay, or in Iloilo. There was a particular boat that was over a 1,000 years old that it's just it's called like the mother boat mm-hmm. it would fit hundreds of people and there's even theories and, and evidence that you know being like the brilliant seafarers that they have been were able to navigate as far as the united states like centuries preceding european invasion right so i recreated this balangay boat using different materials from like tiki decorations to like interior design catalogs but the the shape and the form is is um is resembling um the kind of like historic recreation of like what this boat looked like this instead of the sloop which represents domestic trade i decided to portray my friend two clouds who is a ramapo lenape water protector and a good friend of mine he has been an important very very important part of the process of making this work because as it started to develop um, he and I were in conversation. I visited him on his land in Mawa, New Jersey. 
um, and talking about, he, he's been very active in the fight against the Pilgrim pipeline mm -hmm. that was slotted to run through his ancestral burial ground. Um, and I mean, there's also like a Ramapo College, which is like built on top of so much of their land. And um, he's actually attending there now. And unfortunately, you know, fortunately, he, he, at least he gets a full scholarship out of it, but it's still, it, it's, it's, it's insane. So like, oh yeah, that tennis court there, that, that was yeah. a burial ground as well. And yeah. so a lot of our conversation around his current battle, but also around Lenape creation stories, understanding, you know, the, 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 his, the history of the people who are actually on this land that we're on now informed the way that I developed the concepts and themes of, of, of the installation. I used all, these are air, you can't see my, my air quotes, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I quote unquote um, uh, locally sourced water in the form of Finding Nemo, Nemo tablecloths, Moana tablecloths. These were all from bought from immigrant-owned or immigrant-serving dollar stores around the Queens Museum, but mm -hmm. all water-themed plastic. I suppose we should we should end by by maybe talking about the installation that we're in at False Flag. Do you want to? Should we walk through? Maybe do you want to do you want to do it like that? Sure, yeah? sure, we can. Okay, cool. So I suppose you got that you you were you were offered this space, and and we've talked about the walls a bit, but uh, what were your other ideas surrounding the show? So this show is actually centered around this painting by my grandmother mm -hmm. um, called Beachcombers. This one back here. Yeah. yeah. This is something, this, this is a painting I grew up looking at mm -hmm. um, for a large duration of my childhood. Do you still have a lot of her paintings like hanging in your spaces? Yeah. And... I, keep, I keep her work. I mean, I, I, I wish I could have it all up. I have some of her smaller pieces in my, my uh -huh. New York apartment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's always... She's always around. Mm -hmm. She's always around me. I built, I designed the show around this specific painting that I had, had actually not seen for five years mm -hmm. um, since it was hanging in my mom's last house. You know, as I've been working with landscape, I've also been thinking a lot about this theme of excavation. Mm -hmm. Excavation of resources or, or histories, but also my own, my own body and my own creative practice. And thinking about my grandmother as a really significant woman in my life who inspired me to become an artist, but also whose, whose body, whose, whose blood mm -hmm. I've inherited. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to take this opportunity to pay homage to her. And this, this painting, Beachcombers, seemed very appropriate because it's, it's these figures, but they're also dealing with the land. They're dealing with this form of excavation that metaphorically lines up with what I'm exploring in this space and in, in, in my paintings. And, and so the beiges and the browns and the sand are many of the colors that are in my actual skin. Mm -hmm. So I referenced that palette to create the wall paintings, to select the paintings of mine that are on the wall, of uh, the, the, um, the individual pieces that are on the wall, and to also build this floor installation with my raw materials. These are actually the tarps that I had on the floor when I was painting the walls. Oh, cool. Um, those are the boxes. That's the box that my grandmother's painting came shipped in when my sister sent it. And then there's, you know, these, these tiles that I've been working with a little bit, these vinyl tiles from local Queens dollar stores and books that I reference. But they're all chromatically in line with the subject of skin, the subject mm -hmm. of sand. Camilla Hoffman, thank you so much. Thank you. 
I'd like to thank Camilla Hoffman, as well as False Flag Projects, for hosting our talk. You can see Camilla's show, Excelsior, Ever Upward, Ever Afloat, at the Queen's Museum through fall of 2019. This show is produced by Sarah Levine. Our music is by Jack and Eliza. Remember to leave a rating review and to subscribe to hear all of her episodes. And also, don't forget to check out my portrait of Camilla in her installation, Rockabye My Bedrock Bones, on Instagram and at our website, williamjesslair.com slash imageculture. Thanks for listening.